finding God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hello, everyone, and welcome in to another edition of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. I'm Jason Elam. I'm so grateful to have you with us again this week. Hey, before we get into the episode today, I wanted to ask you to do me three quick favors, if you please. Number one, would you please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to this podcast? By hitting the subscribe button, you help us book great guests for the future. You see, often when a guest is considering coming on the podcast, they'll check out our subscriber numbers to see if it's a good use of their time. So by hitting that subscribe button, you're helping us book great guests for future episodes. Number two, if you will rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it, that helps spread the word about the Messy Spirituality Podcast and get it in front of new eyes and to new ears. Finally, I want to invite you to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Jason Elam writes. When you support us there, you help us produce the best sounding podcast that we can, but also it unlocks some rewards for you. Like you'll get the episodes one week early before they're released to the general public. So you'll get exclusive early access to each and every episode just by becoming a Patreon supporter for $1 or more per month. You'll also get a free copy of my book when it releases later this year. And I'm really excited about that. And I hope you will be too. Once again, that's patreon.com slash Jason Elam writes. And I'd appreciate it so much. And now here's this week's episode. My guest today is Mark Karras. Mark is a pastor, husband, father, licensed marriage and family therapist, and the author of Divine Echoes, Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God. He's the adjunct professor at Point Loma Nazarene University near San Diego. Mark Karras, welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, Jason. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for your time today. Can you tell us a little bit about the faith of your upbringing? What were you raised to believe? Hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Raised to believe nothing. Um, there, there really was no faith growing up. I mean, although I, I do recall getting some money at a communion when I was about six, but that's really all I can remember. So growing up, there was no conscious awareness of God. There was no talk about God. There was no going to church. There are times in in later adulthood when I wish my mom and dad did know God. Uh, they both did the best they could with the knowledge that they had. But man, my mom was a drug dealer who eventually died from a drug overdose. My father was mentally ill, deeply angry and abusive. Oh wow! So, but then I'm not sure if I would have became the kind of person I am today. So, yeah, just while I did have zero faith growing up, I I think the lack of faith. And really, the darkness of my past uh, became the fertile and almost paradoxical ground where vibrant faith could eventually emerge. So what was your introduction to that vibrant faith? That would come later at about the age of of 20. And that's when a huge, well, you know, as, as the old timers would say, that's when I got saved, Jason. I got saved. <laughs> yeah. So what what kind of environment were you saved in? Was there a specific tribe of Christianity? Yeah, so that's kind of how my my faith, you know, changed over time and and sort of the shift. It really was when my twin brother became a Christian and I was at that time period I was a pretty lost uh, long-haired hippie freak 
playing in, in, in bands. We were in a band called Apocalypse at the time, opening up for a national acts, doing really well. But man, was I, I lost. I was lost. I was hope I was a cutter. I used to cut myself. And my brother would tell me about Jesus, and I'd be like, shut the F up. I don't want to hear nothing about Jesus. I didn't really know who Jesus was to begin with, but he would talk about the Bible. And, and little by little, when he wasn't looking, I'd, I'd kind of maybe read the Bible a little bit or just kind of ask myself some questions. And then it seemed like the closer I got to God, the more my internal and out, outer world was like completely crazy. And to the point where I tried to kill myself by doing something so twisted and so dark that it's it, it's a little strange to talk about. But I, I tried to kill myself by getting AIDS. And I know that that's so weird, but that's kind of the frame of mind I was in. And I, obviously, that's probably an, an X-rated story with lesbians in a, in a house and a, just a crazy situation. But I don't have AIDS. But that really, it became pretty dark and then had some really odd experiences. Uh, it's, it's just so much. But at the end of the day, I remember being in a field uh, by myself. And I, I remember raising my hands to God and I said, if you're real, then then reveal yourself to me. Because And the last words I said was, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And something really powerful happened in that moment. It was a real kind of salvation experience. And, you know, just crying because, not because I was lost and, and hopeless and filled with depression and anxiety and shame, but more because I've, I felt the love that I've never felt before. And that experience lasted for, for quite a while. Um, it, it's something that sort of really anchors me amidst sort of the religion of Christianity and, and the crap of Christianity. Um, those sort of mystical, spiritual experiences really kind of anchor me in, into, well, into the Christian faith. Yeah, so that was pretty powerful. And then the, the story continues, but that's that's a little bit of how uh, you know I was raised and and how I got quote saved uh, over time. So after that mystical introduction to God and the unconditional love of God, how did you go from there to becoming an ordained pastor? So when I got saved, I actually got saved in a what was called a Oneness Pentecostal church, right? And for many Christians for a long period of time. I mean, it was considered a cult. It would be in the cult section of the Christian bookstore. <laughs> so women couldn't cut their hair. It was a sin if they cut their hair. And it really, it was a salvation experience. At least that's uh, the the implications. Men couldn't have long hair or facial hair. We couldn't hang out with people who believed in the Trinity. It was a very, uh, I remember one time going to a, um, a meeting Meeting a real famous pastor at the time uh, in the in the UPC tradition, I told him I drank wine at a wedding, and he looked at me with his fierce, angry eyes, and he said, "You are in danger of hellfire." Whew. Like this, this isn't made up. And, and I remember being a young Christian; I was terrified. I was scared. I, I'll throw. I was going to throw a curse word in there, but I was, <laughs> I was, I was, I was petrified, man. I really thought I, I would go to hell. So with that experience, and eventually, I said, "Man, something's not right about this UPC stuff." I got so rigid to the point where I couldn't even drink soda because I thought I would defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. I was so bound up tightly and really in bondage to 
the worst of what toxic religion has to offer humankind. So take it from that. And then I literally ran from that experience um, to what was to Nyack College, which is kind of a middle of the road Christian Missionary Alliance. And really, that was the starting point of a lot of healing, a lot of growth. Uh, my first, probably I was around 26, 25 was like the first mentor in my life up to that point. A first role model, and then just one thing after another of, of spiritual development. I knew at some point I both wanted to become a pastor and I wanted to be a licensed therapist. And I, I went in both directions, both degrees, and I wound up doing both. That sounds like a perfect fit. I know that, you know, I've pastored local churches for about 20 years, and people were constantly coming to me for counseling and therapy I never felt qualified to provide. So uh, I'm glad that you have avoided that <laughs> that feeling of insecurity. Yeah. And not only that, but I, I, I did have this sense that if I didn't get some real, an overhaul of my soul and my spirit in the psyche, I would be some sort of sick cult leader. Uh, I, I, and, and that master's in counseling program, man, uh, I don't know where I would, I'd probably be in the newspaper for something if I just went the pastoral route, because I, I had a lot of deep uh, rooted issues, you know, because granted my background, but that counseling program, man, I mean, between the, the, uh, the necessary individual therapy and group therapy and classes that talked about all the, the deep issues of the soul and, and psyche and trauma, and it really uh, helped form me into who I am today. So I'm very grateful to, for, for that stream. Now, Mark, I don't know you well, but from reading your book and from engaging with your social media presence, uh, you really seem like a very loving and compassionate guy. How do you attribute or what to what do you attribute the healing that has taken place in your life? I mean, the background you describe usually produces monsters and predators, but you seem to be the opposite of that. It's probably because I'm very aware of the monster and the predator within myself. And I, I don't say that lightly, but I, I realize my own darkness. I realize, and I had to go through, like I said, a lot of healing, a lot of self-understanding, my own misogynistic tendencies, things I've done that I weren't proud of. You know, I, I'm just so aware of the need for love and compassion in my own life and forgiveness. In that passage, it says, uh, he or she who is forgiven much loves much. It's hard for me to be judgmental. It's hard. I, I do it, of course, but I'm I'm so cognizant of my own stuff and how I desperately need the grace of God in my own life. How could I really judge other people? And so also because I, I have this sense that when I interact with other people, I know that there there's such there's a different depth to them. There's a beloved depth to them, even though, and as a therapist, I see this in my, my sessions all the time, even though I see people having more defenses than the Pentagon, even though I see people lashing out, like there's an understandable component to why people do the things they do. There's an understanding of why people have this narcissistic rage when they hear truths that they don't agree with. They're so fused with certain theologies that if they're pushed back on it, they literally start calling me and other people a heretic, and they're going to hell, and they get angry. 
So I, I automatically know that's not their best self. That's not the beloved identity. That's the very fearful and scared part of them that's just really afraid of sort of disintegrating in some way because their identity has been infused with these thoughts. And so I, I just have the sense that people are more than their thoughts. I like that a lot. Uh, since that day when you shouted out to God in the heavens to prove himself if he was real, how have your views on prayer changed since that day? My view of prayer changed pretty drastically over the years, and it's still being shaped and formed. Um, so obviously, growing up, I didn't pray at all. Uh, then when I became a Christian and was in that oneness Pentecostal church, forget about it. Prayer wasn't an option. I mean, we prayed for hours on end. We would pray before service, during service, after service. We believed, we, we really believed we were engaging in intense spiritual warfare. And there was sort of this implicit uh, rule that the louder, the better. I guess we thought God would hear us more. But each prayer we thought was a mysterious karate chop to the throat of Satan and his minions, I guess. And that's sort of where the knowledge of prayer ended. It just was the sense that if I prayed loud enough, long enough, and scriptural enough, and didn't engage in the vile and demonic practice of masturbation that week, of course, <laughs> then so, then something good and miraculous would probably happen. You would be anointed. Uh, so, <laughs> I know. Oh, God, these police we have. Uh, so there was a vague sense that if God was in a good mood and, and like thought we were worthy enough, then our prayers would sort of move, motivate, or inspire God to kick Satan's ass and move mountains. And if our prayers were really, really good, we can even raise the dead. I mean, that was the the minds, the militaristic, intense spiritual warfare mindset that we had in that church for many, many years. And so we would fast and pray, and, and th that was just, and we hear the acronym PUSH, pray until something happens. You know, and then over the years, prayer, especially as I got out of that setting, out of that cult experience, prayers became more intimate. And even even then, though, for many years, prayer, I always felt that I wasn't good enough. And I still carried so much shame, just seeing myself as sort of a sinful worm who God was always displeased with. And the real problem was I couldn't distinguish between God and my dad. And I always felt that God didn't really love me. Like my, my head could believe it, but my heart couldn't. It's like in my head, I could sing, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But my heart was like, Jesus loves them, but not me, because I am so dirty. That was So that kind of really affected intimacy with God. But thankfully, through a lot of education and therapy and healing, and really I'm passionate about reading and studying that tyrannical, harsh, and critical God, well, I killed him. And, and behind that God was the loving God behind really those rigid uh, projections. And that, that definitely changed how I, I came to see prayer. You talk in the beginning of your book about the mechanics of prayer. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? A lot of people don't ask a lot of questions about prayer. And the reason why I say that is because I, I, I asked a lot of people, because then I, I, at some point, I started deconstructing prayer. And this has to do with looking at, at my family, my mom dying from a drug overdose, praying for her, fasting for her, interceding, churching, churches praying for her, prayer chains, 
Then my brother diagnosed with a mental illness. I mean, God, I prayed. God, I fasted. So did so many other people. We brought him to churches that specialized, quote, in deliverance ministry. There was even this one church that had paper bags under each seat. I'll never forget that church. They specialize in, in casting out demons. They believe that every person, even Christians, had demons in them. So during every service, they would spend a part of that time, well, people were vomiting up demons. Now, I have different perspectives at this point. But that all started, I started asking a lot of questions. And then I, you know, I visited Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, Japan, South Korea, Cambodia, other countries, just seeing people pray the same exact ways that Christian prayed for the same exact things for health and security and shelter and blessings. I just started asking, is is this effective? And then as I'll probably get into at some point, if it's not effective, then this could actually be increasing more suffering in the world. And, And I could talk about that. But as far as the mechanics, I don't think many Christians we don't deconstruct it that way. I'll go far as to say that I don't think the Apostle Paul kind of asked the nuances, at least that we have in his writings, about the mechanics of prayer. So, for example, when Paul asked the Ephesians to pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fiercely make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassadors in chains, pray that I may de- declare it fearlessly as I, as I should. This is Ephesians 6, 19 through 20. So there's no doubt that Apostle Paul, I mean, man, he was all about prayer. But did Paul imagine that God would withhold boldness until others asked God to give it to him? Like, did he reflect in the character of God and question why a good and loving God would withhold it in the first place? Did Paul think that the more people prayed for him, the greater the chance of the prayers tipping God's scale? that after a certain amount of prayer, God would grant the request? Did Paul question why God wouldn't give boldness in response to his individual prayer, apart from the prayers of the Ephesians? Did Paul wonder about God's will? In other words, if it was God's will to give Paul boldness, how could anything, including the lack of prayer, stop God from pouring out boldness? Did Paul think that God, because of the saints' prayers, would instantly upload boldness to him through the Spirit? So I'm doubtful that Paul asked these kinds of questions, at least with the writings that we have. Paul wrestled with the relevant issues of his time, and I'm just not sure the conundrum of prayer and its mechanics was not one of them. And I I think that's the way it is for a lot of people. Like I've talked to, in writing this book, I made sure that I wanted to do it in community. I reached out to scholars, to many, many pastors. When I started sort of deconstructing and asking them about the mechanics of prayer, like how does prayer really work, it was they kind of left it up to mystery. And some of them got agitated. Mark, I don't know how it works. I just know the Bible says to do it, so we do it. So I, I found that, and uh, even, you know, prayers on Facebook, I, w- I would be a little naughty, and I, you know, a friend of mine, I would contact and I'd say, what did you hope would be accomplished by asking people to to pray for you? And so I asked, started asking the questions, you know, do you believe that that God wouldn't give that to you, that comfort uh, to you if you didn't ask them to pray? Is God waiting for 30 to 35 people to pray and then God would grant the request? You know, just questions like that. And they just said, I don't know, Mark. I just 
pr- I just know prayer is powerful, and I just ask people to pray. So the mechanics of prayer is a mystery. I tried to tackle it. Of course, I, I don't. I'm not the all-knowing. This is from my very situated standpoint as a white male in this particular epoch of history. But I definitely went for it and asked some really deep questions about prayer in my book. All right. So I told you before we went on the air that one of my sweetest memories of my childhood is my sainted grandmother in her 80s, praying over her large family, calling out every one of them's name before God, asking God to be with them and protect them and bless them. Are you saying that petitionary prayer like that is a waste of time? Okay. So my answering this question will buy me no brownie points with many Christians. (laughs) I want to preface it by I'm not criticizing people who pray, but merely the practice. So let me be blunt. I think there are some prayers of intercession. Okay. Uh, and that can, you sometimes people interchange that with intercession, petitionary prayer, and even distance healing prayer. So just kind of talking about the terms there. I, I think there are some prayers that are not only a waste of time, but they actually contribute to more suffering in the world. And they unknowingly imply that God is a stingy, narcissistic, and passive jerk. That's huge. So can I have a moment to unpack that a little bit? Sure, of course. So I, I do want to define the term. We, we did say petitionary prayer, intercessionary prayer, distance healing prayer. They're prayers that make requests of God for answers to life questions and concerns. They're also pleas, and, and this is the sort of crux here, they're pleas for God to be the sole responsible agent to act on behalf of the one who is praying, right? This, we're not talking about prayers of thanksgiving or prayers of lament. This is the essence of petitionary prayer, asking God to do something and really asking God to increase his love in someone's life or in a situation that is in need of the, of the grace of God. So why do I say it's a waste of time? Many reasons. And I think I prefer actually the term why are prayers, many prayers, ineffective. There's something about a waste of time. Okay, maybe a waste of time, but certainly ineffective in accomplishing the goal, which is to get God to increase God's love. So first, for me, there's no there's no evidence. And when I, so there's no scientific evidence. Let's start there. So I'm a person who appreciates the sciences. There have been many studies examining this very issue. People praying for people who are ill, does it make any difference? And they try to do it in a way that's um, uh, accounting for all the possible variables, really making it a legitimate study. One of the largest was the $2.4 million study by Harvard researchers and supported by the Templeton Foundation. And they wanted to test this out, right? So they examined the therapeutic effects of intercessory prayer on, on patients recovering from uh, coronary bypass surgery. So they're placed in three different groups. The members of two of the groups were told they may or may not receive intercessory prayer, though only one of those two groups were actually to receive it. A third group was actually told they would receive prayer. And so Protestant and Catholic intercessors prayed for 14 days for the participants who were designed to receive prayer. And the researchers in this $2.4 million experiment came to the conclusion, well, it didn't work. There there was no effect on whether complications occurred after. There was no healing effects. Actually, the people who were told they were being prayed for, actually, they were worse in the study. And, uh, you know, the critics and media had a field day. 
And I remember Newsweek uh, had a title, Don't Pray For Me, Please, because of the study. But that's one of, of many other studies. So on sort of the scientific, uh, you know, and then people criticize the studies and even doing it sort of, even Christians, you know, how could you do that? It's sort of magic. It's sort of testing magic. And But it seems legitimate uh, if, if people were sick and let's say, let's test it out. Let's test uh, one person praying for them or 50 and if prayer really works and sort of some people talk about it unleashing the power of God, there should be some legitimate or demonstrative healing effect at some level, but we just don't see that uh, in science. You're not saying that God doesn't hear us when we pray, right? I would never. I mean, God hears us when we pray. God hears us when we think. God hears us when we sleep. God hears us when we yearn and long for things. God hears us when we ache and cry and howl and protest and lament. So God hears us. God even hears our silence. God hears our prayers before we even pray them. But hearing them and then enacting them or carrying out the requests is, for me, it's it's a it's a different ballgame. Your ideas on prayer seem to be uh, framed by an absolute belief in the uncontrolling love of God. Can you talk about the uncontrolling love of God and and kind of what it rules in and rules out as far as prayer goes? When thinking about prayer, the, you know, and thinking about God not being a, a controlling puppeteer who's manipulating all things to his autocratic will, and even so, there's there's people who believe in in the God choosing and saying, "I'm going to value free will," and so God making a choice. Right, and that someone like J.P. Moreland uh, kind of says that, and so even there are some conservative Christian philosophers who say, "Well, God is sovereign. God is in control. God doesn't have a plan. God does have a will." But God made a choice to not control other people, to cannot, to value free will, to allow things to unfold. And even they would say, prayer, even in that context, there's a limit. Right? Even J.P. Moreland would say. There's a limit to what God can do because of the aspect of free will. Now, the uncontrolling love of God takes that to a different level in saying, well, God didn't choose to honor free will um, in saying, so, well, God has the power to stop evil, but God simply chooses not to. And the caveat is most of the time, because uh, we believe, of course, God can and, and does so on occasion. But for the most part, God honors free will. That's sort of the traditional understanding. But really thinking about the uncontrolling love of God, it's making the suggestion that, you know, God God can't control people due to God's uncontrolling, loving nature. And so it's saying God can't. And Scripture even says God cannot lie and God cannot be tempted. God cannot be prejudiced or get tired. And those scripture verses all to point those out. But is it also possible that because God's essence is love, that nature is love, that God, it's not that God chooses not to stop evil, it's that God simply can't because of God's uncontrolling loving nature, right? And so that that's going to be a, a very particular lens in then which I see prayer. So if God is uncontrolling love, how we pray matters. And and so this gets into sort of the the nuances of the differences between the two approaches, and I, I could talk about that. But 
So what I'm talking about is, in the traditional view, God can intervene and single-handedly stop evil events from occurring. In my understanding of God's uncontrolling love, especially in regards to prayer, God can't intervene and single-handedly stop evil events from occurring. In the traditional view, God is arbitrarily loving and shows favorites. God heals this child from cancer single-handedly, forcefully sort of intervening, coming down from the heavens, flicking a switch and automatically healing a child. But in my view and others, God loves consistently and fairly, right? So in the traditional view, God intervenes on occasion. In my understanding, God is moment-to-moment loving and maximizing the good. And that is going to be very important in how I pray. And so in the old version, we pray to God. And then this version is deeply relational. We're praying with God, right? We can look out and look at mass shootings. And it's not that God could have stopped that person from killing all those people, but chose not to. It's that God couldn't because of God's uncontrolling, loving nature. And then praying for the victim's family. God, please pour out your your love and your comfort and give them wisdom. Listen, I'm praying something that God already wants. My praying, God, please stop this violence, no more killing. That's already a yes and amen for God. There's no need to twist God's arm. There's no needing to think if we get more people to pray, then it would stop gun violence. So how we pray with a view of the uncontrolling love of God really, really does matter. Absolutely. I remember when your book first came out, and I got a copy of it and was reading through it. I remember thinking that probably 90% of my prayer life as an adult has been asking God to violate someone else's free will and make them make better decisions or whatever. Yeah. Uh, And so— you know, going through deconstruction, which I hate that term, but that that is what we refer to it as. Going through that, it I kind of came through asking the question, where does prayer fit in a life of faith if I don't believe God's going to take away someone else's free will and make them make better choices and do the right thing? But then I stumbled into your your section on conspiring prayer. Yes. And that gave me so much hope. Can we talk about that for a minute? What is conspiring prayer? Yeah. So seeing how uh, we live in a world where there there is free will that God is love that doesn't God doesn't control and force people and I, I need to share one other thing Jason that gives a lot of sort of force to the power of the model of conspiring prayer and and that is I, I talked about how prayer could be uh, ineffective because of the science but here's where I need to talk about why. Conspiring prayer is so important, and that's because I do believe that some intercessory prayer contributes to more suffering in the world. So if I could just touch on that and then getting to conspiring prayer, uh, if, the, if that's okay. Sure. And I'll, I'll talk about the bystander effect. It's a term used by social psychologists to describe what happens when individuals fail to intervene during crises or emergencies when they perceive others are present and aware of the event. One uh, preeminent social psychologist, Elliot Aronson, is quoted as saying, if people are aware that an event is being witnessed by others, the responsibility felt by an individual is diffused. And the famous, you know, I read this book a long time ago, uh, The 38 Witnesses, the Kitty Genovese event, talks about the brutal rape and murder of Kitty Genovese, where 38 people were watching this event 
but did nothing to stop it. And there's sociological reasons for that. But when someone engages in petitionary prayer, at least as traditionally understood, in my opinion, God becomes the competent grand witness who diffuses human responsibility, therefore making the bystander effect in full effect. And the problem is the bystander effect can have terrible consequences. Suffering can increase exponentially. Death can result. In other words, if we believe the most loving and powerful divine agent is on the scene, then there's a natural easing of the direness of the situation. If God has taken care of it, then perhaps we don't have to. We can go about praying our five, 10-minute prayers and going about business as usual. And it reminds me of sort of James's warning. You know, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of them says to them, listen, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, and I will say prayer by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is really dead. So that's sort of leading up to my understanding of conspiring prayer. And conspiring prayer literally means, it comes from the Latin conspirare, which literally means to breathe together and figuratively sort of the act in harmony toward a common end. And it, today's usage, it has a negative cons, connotation, which I like in some sense, which sort of has plot to plot with someone to do something wrong or evil. And so conspiring prayer is, is performed with God rather than to God. And it's a form of prayer where we create space in our busy lives to align our hearts with God's heart, where our spirit and God's spirit breathe harmoniously together, and where we plot together to subversively overcome evil with acts of love and goodness. So that's sort of a, a definition of conspiring prayer. And if we take the uncontrolling love of God seriously, I think that is going to be the most effective prayer. Because much of the, the petitions that we pray, God's already saying, yes, I want that too. And then we're, we become creative and we pray with God, deeply relational, and say, God, since this is something you already do, want to do, how can we work together to be your hands and feet in the world? That makes the most sense to me in regards to petitionary prayer. Can you give us an example of what a conspiring prayer might look like? Yeah, this will come from my book, but I, I talked about my brother uh, being diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. He was about 20, 21 years old, which as a therapist I know is kind of be, be the average onset of a mental illness like that, 21, 23, early 20s. And so I used to pray. Uh, believing I had to twist God's arm, but I, I no longer hold to a theodicy that understands that, well that understands God not to be a cruel scriptwriter who intentionally gave my brother mental illness for some mysterious purpose. Whom then, since God gave it to him in some mysterious way, I can through enough prayer and fasting motivate or encourage God to instantly heal my brother. I, I just don't have that picture of God anymore. So I don't have to hold back this sort of cognitive dissonance and its byproduct of, you know, implicit or explicit distrust toward God. So, for example, how I would pray with the uncontrolling love of God in mind, God, I'm, I'm sick to my stomach. And so I preface this with, my brother is in prison for life now. 
because while he was off his medication, he murdered somebody in prison. It's a long story. It was, you know, all all over the papers. Oh my goodness! But it, then it gets complicated because if someone has visited him and and has talked to him, I mean, being raped and sodomized in prison and beat up by the guards and and looking at him and his teeth are chipped and cracked because of getting hit and, you know, it it makes me sick. But uh, I'm starting to get emotional. I, so how I would pray, God, I'm sick to my stomach. I can't imagine what my brother goes through in that desolate cell. The prison system is a mess. He's all alone without care, without comfort, and without family and the familiarity of safe and accepting people. God, thank you for your love for him. I know you know what it's like to suffer and to feel abandoned. You have felt the sting of rejection and the madness of being tormented by your accusers all the way to your last breath. I know our hearts mutually ache for him, but aching is not enough. I long for you to save him and make his mind whole. I long for you to set him free. I want him to be in his right mind and to have normal conversations without paranoia and anger and rage. And I know you desire him to experience those as well. God, I take this time to listen to your voice. I pray for your wisdom and for creativity to know how to co-labor with you and to love my brother and your precious son more effectively. Amen. Like that would be a short prayer of keeping the uncontrolling love of God in mind. I know God loves him. God wants him to be whole. God can't unilaterally force his way into the situation because if God could, then wouldn't have God done so already? Would it really be the will of a loving and compassionate God for my brother to literally be in hell as we speak for the rest of his life? Surely that cannot be the plan and the will of God for my brother, who is now, after recently visiting him, is a shell of a human being. And I, I don't say that, you know, I don't say that lightly, but I know who he was, and he is no longer resembling anyone in his former self. Mm, my goodness, that's heartbreaking. It is. It is. Yeah. One last question before we start to wrap things up, because we're getting close on time. Is there room in the uncontrolling love of God for miracles? Yes. So I would say that God can't, and suggesting that God can't, is not in contradiction with God can when we emphasize God's uncontrolling love and say God can't, we're just saying God cannot perform miracles single-handedly without any cooperation from people or laws of regularity or other variables that we have no idea about. So God can't is best understood when qualified. So when folks say, listen, I can't get on board with your view of God's uncontrolling love because I've seen weird stuff or miracles happen, I'm still confused why. Uh, I, well, I would say I'm still confused why. I mean, we would never say God can't perform miracles in people's lives. We would suggest that it's not that God intentionally chooses to heal some and not others. It's just that miracles happen when God and other variables sort of synergistically align and dance with one another. And because of that, some people get healed and many, many do not. So stated that way, I'm not sure people would disagree. So where where does the mystery really lie? So does the mystery have to lie with whether God can but chooses not to heal? 
or whether God can't single-handedly people heal people but requires cooperation from a myriad number of variables to heal. But perhaps we can say the mystery lies in not knowing what variables came together and cooperated with God to cause this miracle to occur. So, for example, if you have a person who has cancer and experiences the miracle of healing, first, let's be honest, uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people die from cancer, I think on a yearly basis. So are we saying God chooses to forcefully and single-handedly to intervene in some and not others? I can't buy that. What kind, what kind of God is that, right? But I think of it like when God's loving power, plus a faith-filled, humble heart, plus cooperative cells and organs of a body, plus the right temperature, plus loving, compassionate others in their life, plus the right nutrients, plus the doctor's wisdom and care, plus the type of drinking water, plus the air quality, and a myriad number of other elements that can come together that I'm not smart enough to understand, that could equal a healing miracle. In other words, the reason why we don't see a lot of miracles, and now, you know, of course, the miracle of life and breathing is a miracle, but these sort of big, you know, macro miracles, I don't think it's because God is stingy with God's love. But I do think, and this makes the most sense to me, that in many occasions, God simply can't. Because God, because a miracle equals God plus a myriad number of var- variables cooperating and dancing with one another. That makes the most sense to me. So in that framework, yes, we see miracles, right? But is that because God forcefully had God's way, bypassing people's wills and bodies and cells? And I don't think so. I think it's, and this is why we see it on such a rare occasion, it's because God's love that in every moment is maximizing the love and beauty and truth in our lives is coming into contact with the right with the right bag of variables. I, I know it sounds simplistic, but that's how I, I make sense of it at this point. Well, it makes sense to me too, because it seemed most of my life uh, I've struggled with this idea, you know, the people we pray for uh, who don't get healed. And, and, you know, well, we say it on social media, so many others do too, you know, well, God protected my house from the tornado or thank God we beat this cancer. And the the hidden sub-meaning there is, well, that other person who didn't get healed, God wasn't working for them. Or that family that did get hit by the tornado, God wasn't looking out for them. And that that's just unacceptable in my in my understanding. And so at least you're making us think through these things. And I know everybody may not come to the same conclusions that you are coming to, but I think it's a huge step forward in at least thinking through these things. Fasting has been a struggle for me since the reconstruction journey. Uh, I, I used to think of fasting as something that, you know, I do this in order to get God to pay attention, or I do this in order to prepare myself to receive what God wants to pour into me and things of that nature. And it really just kind of felt like I'm twisting God's arm. I'm saying, God, I want this so bad. I'm willing to not eat for three days or whatever. And so, uh, I think the approach that you're taking to prayer is so much more healthy. Yeah. And and Jason, as you were talking about that, I do make a, a distinction between sort of praying on behalf of others and praying for ourselves. And I and I do think there are spiritual disciplines that we can engage in, not to twist God's arm, but because we know our egos can be so strong 
that it could be beneficial in creating space where we can open ourselves to the beauty and truth and love of God in, in unique ways through various uh, spiritual disciplines. And that could be, you know, walking, taking time to be intentional to walk in a forest, you know, or, um, you know, reaching out to someone in the community and just sharing your heart and creating a space where allowing God to be present and just listening and hearing for God's sweet, tender voice in that moment. Although God's voice can be quite challenging and unsweet at times too. Um, but yeah, so it's it's uh, there's so many nuances to the con- prayer conversation, and uh, this has been really cool. There really are, and I appreciate your time coming to talk to us today on this subject. This uh, is something we get a lot of questions about from folks who've been through that deconstruction journey and just don't know what prayer looks like on the other side of that. And so you've provided a context to that, and I really appreciate that. Uh, what are you working on currently, Mark, and how can people engage with you online? Well, I'm trying to finish my doctoral program, finished all my classes, but working on some major doctoral exam requirements, uh, busy uh, teaching at Point Loma, performing workshops in the area, private practice, see individual couples and families in my therapy practice. But the, my publisher is uh, Choir. They're putting together an online summit on the sort of deconstruction journey. And my, my hope is my next book is on this topic of, you know, looking at the deconstruction, reconstruction journey through the lens of someone who is an ordained pastor, someone who is a licensed therapist and taking some of the, the gems and things I've learned really to help others through that process. Because it, for many, it feels like walking on a waterbed rather than solid ground. It does really... Man, it, it's it's such a paradigm shift. It's such a it's such a journey that causes people to feel a lot of anxiety, a lot of discomfort, a lot of disequilibrium. And so, I really have a passion to help people that really were like me in many ways. I went through that journey as well. I think I'm I'm a little bit uh, past sort of the what uh, Walter Brueggemann might call the disorientation stage, although that that could come at another time period. But really passionate about that topic. And people can get hold of me, uh, conspiringprayer.com. And if any, if people have not purchased the book and they're thinking about it, if they do, send me an email and I will give you a digital copy of the workbook for free. It has about 100 questions because I'm really passionate about people going through their own sort of uh, investigation, deconstruction or reconstruction of their own understanding of, of prayer. That's what my book, Divine Echoes, is. I don't want them to just take what I'm saying and just sort of go with it, think through it. These questions will will help you think through it. Uh, churches uh, have used it in small groups. It can be a very powerful tool to help think through their own theology of prayer. Absolutely. I'm so grateful for that offer, and I'll take advantage of that personally, and I'll encourage others to do the same, to get that workbook from you on Divine Echoes. I'm really looking forward to your next book. Do you have a title in mind for that? Jason, I don't. It's, there's... um. There's an article that I wrote that it's will be a very expanded version, uh, Death and Life by a Thousand Cuts. It was a, a, in a peer-reviewed research article, uh, Regent University. I think anyone can look that up. That's sort of the 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 title of it. But I can't. I don't know what the title is. It might it might be that. Who knows? 
but I'm excited and I will let you know when it comes out. Awesome. Well, I hope that you'll come back and talk about that book with us as well. Sounds good, Jason. Thank you so much, Mark, for your time. Friends, I really want to encourage you to get this thought-provoking book. It's going to encourage you, give you a framework for prayer after deconstruction. Divine Echoes, Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God. Thank you so much, Mark Karras, for being our guest here today. You're very welcome. Thanks, Jason. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.